0: Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode.
1: All right. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Ted Lemon. It's June 6, 2022. And we're joining via Zoom today. Uh, Ted, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate this. Uh, First
2: question to get you started is why wine? (laughs) Because you don't have to wear a tie. Pretty much,
3: Uh, you know, I was a French literature major um, who uh, like many, you know, liberal arts kids didn't know what to do with myself. And I'd had the good fortune of spending half a year at the University of Dijon. Uh, before it became the Université de Bourgogne and uh, um, had taken a wine appreciation class there. Um, and uh, the gentleman who ran it said to me, you know what, if you ever want to do a harvest in Burgundy, let me know and I'll help you find something. And uh, after graduating, um, I was like, or when I was graduating, I was like, why not? Who could possibly, uh, you know, turn down the opportunity to go work a harvest in the vineyards, even if you end up doing something completely unrelated? So I said, yes, I'll come back. And I did. So you had, so you had no, no background
1: in wine. What was the experience I, like for you?
3: Yeah, no, I had no background at all in wine. I was a you know a liberal arts major. And um, I just uh, thought it would be interesting to try. And I was luckily lucky enough to get a scholarship, a postgrad scholarship from college to do this. Don't ask me how I calmed them into giving me one, but I did. Um, And uh, so I knew I had the money to survive, even if it was gonna be all volunteer work for a year or six months or whatever it would be. And uh, so I was able to to do it, to go over there. Um, There was only one problem, Rich, which is that in the interim, uh, Francois Mitterrand had been elected the first socialist president of France since the war on a full employment for the French uh, platform. So by the time I got there in August of 1980, Uh, No one wanted to hire any American under any circumstances because of this issue. So so I ran into a few problems uh, at that point um, and was really striking out um, left and right. But uh, I was fortunate enough through this contact to get the number of of Jacques S. at Domendrujac. Jacques. And that was um, simply because this gentleman said to me, why don't you try Jacques Sess at Dujac? His wife is American. Maybe he knows what happens to Americans in Burgundy. And of course at this time, there were still telephone booths. And so I literally went to a telephone booth and this was my last phone call. I didn't know what I was gonna do if this didn't come through and uh, was able to get Roz Sess on the phone and um, made sure to speak only in French with her so that she knew that I was fluent. It was very important. And, uh went down to see her and then she said yes as a matter of fact my husband's in paris He's had a major um, issue with sciatica and i'm back operation and we are suddenly finding ourselves desperately in need of help so i said well
2: i'll do it when you said that what did you envision you would be doing what was your
3: impression
1: of the work you would be doing
3: uh, <laughs> there wasn't any. I I was willing to do anything. Uh, that was that was not an issue. I I think um, I knew I'd be spending some time in the vineyards. That was number one, um, and then in the cellar because at that time, you know, Dujac was a little smaller. The boys were very young. Jeremy was five. Um, Alec was probably three. I'm guessing. Um, Paul was you know a year old or something like that. And and so. Um, Jacques really didn't have a seller team, right? It was just Jacques and and then a couple of the vineyard guys who really didn't know much about the cellar. And so he needed someone in the cellar who could uh, uh, who could be more um, you know, could communicate better with him on a on a more lack for lack of a better word, intellectual basis, right? And so that was really my role during harvest. Jacques was in bed most of harvest and, and was only able to get out of bed a couple of times and uh, um, I would take wine samples to his, his bedside and then he'd tell me what to do. And that's kind of how we managed to make it through the 80 vintage.
1: What were your impressions of the work itself as you started to do it? What was your impression of vineyard work and of the cellar? Did, did you enjoy it immediately? Was it a learning curve for
3: you? Oh yeah, no, I enjoyed it immediately. Absolutely, I was I was uh, pretty much hooked right away. Yeah, um, you know, it was a very different time in Burgundy. Obviously, it was it was much more closed at that time and uh, much less open to outsiders. Which isn't, isn't to say that the sesses weren't open. It was the opposite, obviously. But um, it was a very very different time culturally in Burgundy than than today. And so I feel very fortunate to have seen that culture, not an easy culture by any means all the, uh, all the time or in many ways, but really a, a chance to um, have met and gotten to know people who had grown up during the or, or been in their young adulthood during the really difficult years of the 30s, the 40s and the 50s um when you know people were barely making a living in burgundy so having had the opportunity to meet those people and taste with them and that sort of thing was really a you know i look back on it it's a real privilege and an honor to have done that
1: so i'm curious about learning wine for you the education process both sort of your palate and of the work itself what was the what was the process for you
2: What did you find worked the best, and and what did you find most enjoyable about learning about wine? I
3: think the complexity of it was a a big factor for me. Um, I was very much interested in uh, the fact that it's this amazing um, combination of tradition and culture, uh, you know, science. chemistry, plumbing, electron, uh, electrical work, you name it, all, all of those things, I really enjoyed the diversity of it. it. Was a was a big factor for me.
1: So after the first harvest, what came next for you?
3: Uh, so uh, I stayed at Dujac for eight months um, and uh, working full-time and then Jacques was kind enough to say to me you know you should really he got me into the university in the oenology program doing the the short course um at that time because he said you know you really should have the introduction to oenology I had no interest in doing the uh diplôme national I wasn't going to spend five years but um you know I, I thought I should know the at least the short course stuff but, the cliff notes version so to speak and uh, so I did that concurrently and then he really encouraged me to go work for other people because um, he said you need to see what other people do and so I spent a, a month or six weeks each um, working for Jean-Marie Lumier, Christophe's dad. Christophe was at the army that year. Uh, I worked for Domaine Parra and Pommard. I worked for Bruno Claire who had just started in less than five years before. I mean, I don't know, it be on the website, but Bruno was just getting going with his own estate. So that was really fun to see what Bruno was doing. Um, I worked for Robert de Villene down in Bougeron. Um, Again, just to really get the flavor of these estates and see how they functioned, what their culture was, what differences they might have from Duchac and the way they farmed or, uh, you know, how they thought about wine, all of those things.
2: What were your impressions impressions. of of the culture there,
1: of the wine culture? What what was it like at that point and what were the wines like as you were tasting them?
3: So there were a couple of things that that are important I think to to know. That is that that the number of really top estates was smaller then. Um, I think that there's no question overall that there's more estates producing better wine in Burgundy today than there was in 1980. And most of those people knew each other, right? They were either friends or they were more than acquaintances. Um, They talked to each other. They exchanged information. They were more open than most of Burgundy was. Um, So that's one thing that was particular to that that world that I got introduced to, as opposed to being at some little old vignerons who, you know, really was from true peasant stock and had never... Emerged much beyond the you know the tiny estate that they might have run. Um, so that one that's really st- st- um, sticks out to me from that period of time. And you're also dealing with a period of time where the, the great boom had not yet happened. And so people forget this, or there's young people, there's no reason they would be aware of this. But the 70s, in terms of wine quality in Burgundy, were were pretty miserable, right? I mean, if you look at the vintage. Vintages, 70 was okay, 71 was maybe better and depended on the wine. 72 was thin and uninteresting. 73 was worse, 74 was worse than that. 75 was absolutely forgettable. (laughs) Um, You know, it's finally 76, you hit a great vintage. 77, a lot of wine, pretty thin. Uh, 78, another great vintage. 79, a large vintage of decent quality. So uh, there was a lot of burgundy in the market. There was a lot of burgundy to sell. There was a lot of burgundy to buy. Um, and it was not an easy time in that sense for people. And so when I first got there in 80, these are the vintages being sold, right? People were thrilled to have had 78. 76 had gotten through the marketplace. Um, but it, was not, it wasn't easy. It was, it, was not a, it was not an easy time.
2: so at at that time, as you're you're meeting all of these
3: people,
1: seeing all of these places, were you starting to think this was something you wanted to do long term? at what what point did that become more uh, of of a future for yourself?
3: Yeah, I thought that um, I felt as if rich, i I um, had had this amazing experience. Obviously there were, I couldn't get a visa. I didn't have a way to get a visa or, or anything. And as I said, Burgundy was a lot more closed than it is today. And so I felt like, well, I've done it. You know, I've had my great experience. I'll head home and see what happens. And so I stepped out of the business for a year uh, to try to write the great American novel, which I'm happy to say I failed to do. Um, and um, at the end of that year of trying to do something different, I was like, okay, no, I'll go back to the wine business. And uh, so uh, I met Josh Jensen at Calera, who was a uh, a good friend of Jacques. And Josh, a wonderfully welcoming, warm human being said, yeah, sure, come on, do the harvest with us. And so I went out and did the harvest of 82 at Calera. And of course, Steve Dorder was still there at that time. And uh, that was a lot of fun. We had a great year there, and it was also, I think we'd have to check with Randall Graham, but I think it was the first year that Randall made wine and Randall made wine at Calera. And he made Pinot Noir and he was not happy with the results and that made him decide to veer off in the whole Roam Ranger direction. uh, His disappointment with what he was seeing um, from what he was trying at at Calera, which wasn't Calera fruit, right? It was other sources,
2: Um, but it was was a lot of fun to, to have Randall there at the same time, it was great. so then, at that at that point, were you thinking again, are you thinking like,
1: this is my path now. I'm gonna be a winemaker. i'm gonna I'm gonna start my own thing, or are you still just sort of dabbling?
3: Um, yeah i I didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, it was I'd never been to California. <laughs> I never set foot out west, not not the California West. I been you know, to the Rockies and all that sort of thing. but so it was a new culture, a new place, and so Uh, very different. It was also an interesting time because um, Dick Graff was still alive and the Shalone group had yet to, to expand dramatically. And so they had a small winery um, technical group, which include, included Shalone and Calera, and Mount Eden, and I think Ventana Vineyards, which is an old name people may remember. Rick Foreman was in that group also. Uh, at that time. And so it was great introduction to those people. And again, I I felt very fortunate, Rich, because I saw sort of the last, I think, really great years of Shalom, when Shalone, and I apologize to current ownership if you don't like that description, but it was a different place, much smaller, um, very focused on the high end and really produced some um, amazing wines, Chenin Blanc, Chardonnay, Pino, really terrific wines. And so getting the opportunity to to see that and to meet Dick and Peter Graff. Um, and this was right when um, um, uh, I think 1980 was right about when um, uh, Jeffrey Patterson started at Mount Eden. So Jeffrey was either brand new or a year or two years into his stewardship there so there's been a big change at Mount Eden also. I'm sure Ridge was part of that group but I don't I don't remember meeting Paul Draper.
2: So you mentioned first time in California, first time in the West. Uh, What
1: were your impressions as you got there?
3: Certainly different from Burgundy, no question about that. My frustration at Calera was the separation of vineyards and and winemaking, which I had, you know, the reason I'd chosen Burgundy as opposed to going to Bordeaux was I couldn't get my, wrap my mind around this idea that you'd have a maitre chais on one side or a winemaker on one side and a chef de couture or a vineyard manager on the other. Um, it, It seemed like the two things should be the same. They should be the same person, of course, you know, the technical director at the major chateaus now kind of fulfills that role. But anyway, in my mind, it was, it should be the same person. And so the scale of Burgundy felt more appropriate to me. And I was a little frustrated seeing in California that there was more of that separation, uh, or seemed to be more of that separation. And so um, I didn't know what I was going to do next, which I had no idea. Um, And uh, I I got a phone call um, from, I think it was Jacques saying, Jacques Sess saying, uh, well, uh, Guy Rouleau has passed away um, and the Rouleaus are really casting about for what to do. Jean-Marx was still working full-time as an actor, young actor, of course, then in Paris, would you be interested in coming back and and, uh, giving them a hand? As you can well imagine, of, of course I said, yes. Be happy to, and so I, you know, got on the plane
2: as quickly as I could to go back. So b- back in Burgundy, back in a place that
1: you've you've been, and and a place that you say is more kind of conducive to the way you're viewing wine and vineyards at that time. Um, what was your, what was the role as you got there, and and how did the role change once once you got started?
3: So um, it was. There was a certain irony to this because I had loved Guy Rouleau's wines when I worked for Jacques and Jacques had a lot of the Rouleau wines in his cellar. And uh, so I'd asked him, he said, where do you want to work? And pretty high up on the list was Rouleau. And so he called Guy. This was before Guy was sick, obviously. And, and uh, Guy said to him, well, Jacques, I'd love to have him, but my, my uh, crew is pretty old fashioned down here and pretty gruff and pretty tough, you know, peasants, and they'd probably eat him alive. And so, so that didn't happen, but uh, whatever it was a year plus later, I showed up to be their boss. So that was an interesting experience. And, and um, it was, you know, it was a combination of working. There were so many things at Rulo that were, were so well managed. Rich. I mean, he was a very accomplished um, uh, winemaker and and property manager and, and vineyard manager. He really knew what he was doing. So it wasn't like walking into a situation that was remedial. That wasn't it at all. It was the opposite. It was more like, you know, this boat has got on a really great tack right now and is moving really fast. And all you got to do is keep, keep it on that tack. So that was my job, was to oversee the winemaking part, the enological part, the vineyard part, working with the traditions that they had um, and not really trying to change them. You know, we tweak things. I mean, we ended up doing the 1983 vintage, which is about as far of an outlier as you can possibly get probably in in Burgundy history. Um, And so we had to adjust on a lot of things for 83. Um, but you know, Jean-Marc's mom was there full time, and Jean-Marc would come and see me. And we would chat about stuff and go over it and whatnot. Um, but it, it was pretty rough and tumble. There's no question about that. This was a this was a different culture, and uh, uh, it was it was the old the old way of doing things for sure.
2: How did you feel that you were? accepted there given given all of that as an American how did you
1: how, how did you fit
3: uh you had to prove yourself you, you didn't fit you didn't fit you had to prove yourself you had to be able to prune as fast in a row you had to be able to do everything as fast or faster than everybody else and so that was very difficult um you know I was a young man so that helped um but I also didn't have 25 years of pruning experience Right. So you're in a situation where you're, you got to man up and show that you're as fast as everybody else or better. Um, and that, that, well, that was very challenging. That uh, was very, very challenging, but that's okay. I think I learned a lot from the experience and, and um, yeah, I think I understand what a rough old Burgundian is. There's, I'm pretty clear on that.
1: Maybe more than anyone, that's funny. Um, so you mentioned the 1983 vintage is particularly challenging and a particular outlier, and that's right as you're getting started. So tell me about making those kinds of adjustments and, and, and where does the knowledge come from? Where did the knowledge come from you? Where did the confidence come from for you to make those kinds of decisions in such a strange vintage?
3: Um, I was uh, very well supported by uh, Jacques Sess and Aubert de Villene. And Patrick Bees of Savigny, those three in particular, and Bernard Michelot in uh, in Merceau, who was Guy's best friend. And those those four people in particular, were incredibly helpful and supportive, um, which was huge, you know, to be able to bounce ideas and uh, thoughts off them. But for for young people who wouldn't have any idea about the vintage, it was a vintage, first of all, to put it in context, this this period of time was the height of chemical farming in Burgundy. Burgundy is a much better place today, Rich, than it was then. Um, So people were spraying all kinds of cocktails all the time. Um, and this particular vintage had a real problem with, and I can't even remember technically which insect it was. It was like Tordeuse de la Grappe, or uh, anyway, it was a, it was a, um, it was a caterpillar inside um, uh, the clusters, and uh, we, there was a huge problem with rot in both red and white Burgundy, widespread partly induced by weather, partly by the presence of um, the caterpillar. And so the, the wines went through the roof or the grapes went through the roof in sugar in a way that is just not traditional in white wine um, as the botrytis formed and we were, you know, not even at a hundred days and sugars were zooming, And it was very controversial in Burgundy because everybody, will, you know, tradition said you pick after the hundred days. And I'm looking at this stuff and going, it's right we need to get like we need to pick this 100 days 100 days um but i'll never forget um yeah, bernard Michelot pounding on the table saying to me at one point saying ted it's 100 days it's never less than 100 days but it was less than 100 days in that instance so I'm very I'm very much an outlier of vintage in which alcohols were high so things did not want to finish fermenting Very very difficult challenge. Lots of oxidation issues. Uh, You know, wines that you would pull out of a barrel and put in a glass, and five minutes later it's brown. I mean, scary stuff. Really really scary stuff. So um, really difficult to deal with in that way. Not as difficult as the reds because the botrytis meant there was no color, and it was you know making making red burgundies in, in '83 was even more challenging than whites. I think. Um, but that's why, that's how it was in Hallelmeyer.
2: So tell me about the, the progression of your time from then on in,
1: in Burgundy after the, after the, first, the first vintage. Uh, what came next for you and, and how did your kind of your sort of role and, and expertise uh, mm. and grow?
3: Yeah, it, it, certainly uh, I was able to settle in in my relationships there. And uh, as I gained respect from people um, or the people I worked with specifically, um, so that became much, much easier. And what I, what I began to see in my own mind was that in order for, for Rouleau to get to the next step in evolution, in quality of evolution, Jean-Marc really needed to come home. Because you know, professional managers like I was, what are called geôle in French, there's only a handful in Burgundy, and there's the society was then, except for Lalu Bise, Leroy and a few other women, was largely largely patriarchal, right? The man would run the society, the, the estate, and I I saw that tradition, and I said. I said to the Rulos, "This is what you need, right? I mean, there's things we need to do to get Rulo to the next step in its evolution. Guy has done amazing work, but it can get there. But you know, it's going to take the Sun doing, them. N- not me as an outsider, because you're going to you're going to have trouble accepting from an outsider. And so we had great discussions about that, but I came to my conclusion that I should I should move on that I really as great as it was and how wonderful it was to be so special in burgundy as the only American winemaker the only other person was Pascal Marchand from from Canada uh, I was like no you know this is this is what they need and I need to recognize that and and uh, I looked around at other jobs in France and like I said there's not a lot of professional uh, management positions then in France at all for for in general and even less for Americans so after looking at a couple opportunities i said you know what I'll go to California. It's booming. Uh, I want to go see what's happening in Napa Valley, even if I don't stay there.
1: So you 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 had left California, gone for a while, and now you're back. Like you said, in the middle of a boom. Uh, what what was different about it? Coming back to it.
3: Uh, well, I really didn't know the North Coast, so that was um, a new discovery for me. Um, And um, I think I was also very fortunate in Napa because I I moved there in 85. And this was really the last glimmer of what I would call rural farming Napa Valley. Now people can complain about me saying that, which I would understand, um, but there was still that agrarian community feeling. There was a greasy spoon where everybody, you know, ate in the morning after you'd done your frost protection in the spring, for instance. Um, there were not the sort of upscale shops that there are now um, in St. Helena. Um, it was just a very tail end of a different era as as Napa began to boom. And I was fortunate enough to to just catch that. Um, and uh, was fortunate enough to get a job where I could be both vineyard manager and winemaker, which I, I thought was really was really essential. And that was up on Howell Mountain for a place at the time called Chateau Voltner, which was um, purchased by the former owners of La Mission Aubriant in 1980. I think they purchased it. Eighty-three, eighty-four. I can't, I can't remember now. I'd have to go back and look. Um, but this is a beautiful property on Hell Mountain that Rick Foreman actually wanted to purchase himself, but you know, said to me, you know, I I can't afford it. It's too big for me. Um, so that's why I mentioned it to the uh, the Vogler family, who we had known from Bordeaux from visiting them, and so uh, it was all Chardonnay at the beginning, um, which I was not as keen on for Hell Mountain, although I thought it'd be different and interesting. Um, but the plan was to plant Cabernet long-term. And what I was really interested was this combination of working with Rick Foreman on Cabernet Sauvignon and Henri Lagardère, who had been the winemaker at La Mission for 40 years. And that was a combination I was really interested in.
1: You came back to the point there about being both vineyard manager and winemaker and how important that was to you to see those two is one person in, in charge of both. Uh, what, where is there, were there others around with a similar role or was that fairly unique at that time in, in when you were getting started there?
3: Not many. Can't really think. Other than people who owned their own property, Randy Dunn, right, who was less than two miles away. Uh, Randy was pretty much doing everything, but it was unusual in Napa Valley for sure. Um, and I really, I really felt strongly about it. I really wanted to do both, and uh, so I stayed there for seven years, approximately. Um, and and then, uh, and this is the part which gets more interesting for your subject matter, perhaps. And I'm happy to you know answer other questions, but I do want to work our way there. There, um, by the early '90s, I was I had moved from a position in which. Well, let me let me back up, Rich. I, imagine that uh, you've played baseball for a year of of your life and all of a sudden you're starting for the New York Yankees. I don't want to overdo the, overstate the, the opportunity or, or the position I was in in Burgundy, but I'd gone from nowhere to the majors, you know, basically overnight. And so my feeling leaving Burgundy was, oh my God, you've worked with these among the most incredible vineyard sites in the world. Um, you'll never be able to own something like that. So you're going to be somebody's hired gun for the rest of your life because I don't have any money and I don't have a family fortune. Um, But by the early 1990s, that had begun to change. I had begun to feel a little bit differently, a little more interested in being a pioneer. Um, I had visited Oregon. I had visited Anderson Valley. I would seen parts of the Sonoma Coast. know I really had opened in a lot of ways to doing and seeing different things and I thanks largely to two people I just mentioned Rick Foreman and Randy Dunn who really said to me look just do it you know just start your own thing don't worry about how big it is or how much it is just figure out where you want to go and get started
2: So before you get to that, I'm curious about the the, the farming specifically
1: aspect of your work. Uh, tell me about, you mentioned you're in Burgundy at a, at a very highly chemical farming time. When you're in Napa or as you're sort of developing your philosophy, had you started to come around to a different kind of farming at this
3: point? Tiptoeing is the way I would describe it. We were fortunate enough in Napa with that summer dry climate to not have the disease pressure um, of Burgundy, that's for sure. Um, but it was formed conventionally uh, at that time. And I began to work a little bit with organic cover crops. It was my first frustration with organics because I found that um, working with nitrogen fixing cover crops, you saw great results for a year or two. And then things kind of went back to where they were. Um, and so that was kind of the first inkling that maybe I had to start thinking a little more deeply about um, alternative farming and what might make it, make it work. But that didn't come
2: till later, for sure. So you have this advice that you're, you know, find a place and go do what you want to do.
1: So tell me about that process then, as as you're starting to think about that becoming a reality. Where were you thinking? Where did you look? And how did you end up landing where you did?
3: So, um, my wife Heidi and I, um, not married at that time, but close to being married, um, spent um, a lot of the winter of 92-93 traveling from literally the Canadian border to the Mexican border looking at sites for Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. And, um, My conclusion from that trip, unlike a lot of people, I think, was that there is no holy grail location for these varieties in in the Western United States. I think that historically, you could make a really good argument that Shalom um, and maybe Mount Eden um, had the greatest history for producing exceptional wines. But, you know, anybody could argue that point. There were, you know, Obal Climat had just gotten started in, in uh, seven or eight years before in, in Santa Maria. And, and Jim was making really lovely wines. There were some terrific wines being made, obviously by Williams and Selium, out on the uh, on Russian River Valley and parts of the Sonoma coast. And, you know, you can extend that up to Oregon. I mean, if I put on my, my time my time traveling hat, who would have stood out to me in particular? I, I certainly thought what Cameron was doing was really interesting and and very reflective of place. Um, I liked Eva Wood quite a bit. Um, David Adelsheim was really my primary host during my times, my multiple visits to Oregon. And it was really great to taste with David and, and see his stuff. Um, to go see the Ponzi's. Um, I never got to Irie, which was pretty funny because um, David Adelson kept trying to get me in to see the other David. And uh, it was a couple of three different trips, I think. And Adelsheim, who of course, knew David very well. Um, apologized profusely for he said I'm trying Ted I I just can't can't get you in the door you know David's famous for being a bit of a curmudgeon and uh finally the last time I was I think I was in Adelsheim kitchen with him and David Adelsheim said here you talk to him so I got on the phone with David Lett and we start talking and and um David said to me well, Ted, what exactly, why exactly do you want to come here? And I just, I laughed and I just said, David, I'd just like to see what you're doing and learn just like I would if I went to go
2: see a new seller in Burgundy. Didn't help, never got in the door. You mentioned
1: some of the places here that stood out to you. What did you sort of think in general about Oregon's wine industry and and the wines and the people at that time?
3: Uh, Very highly. So what I was trying to say was that I felt like there was really great wine being made all over. um, And that the the potential was really exceptional um, throughout the West Coast. What really the, the things that really intrigued me about Oregon were, it was young, but not that young. And what I mean by that was that because that history although tiny went back to the 60s, and because of the work of David Lett and David Adelson, the Ponzi's and, uh, you know, a whole bunch of e and all these other people, you could really get a sense, I thought, of what the potential was in Oregon. That was much more difficult, Rich, in, in what became the Sonoma Coast or the true Sonoma Coast or in Anderson Valley. You just you just couldn't see as clearly because I think the sophistic- so sophistication and the knowledge of the, the Letts, the Ponzi's, the Adelsheim, and these, these were really really well-educated, thoughtful people who had visited a new Burgundy well and had thought a lot about what they wanted to do and why in Oregon. And so that was really, I loved that part of it. And I loved the sense of community, which was really strong. And, um, there were a couple of people I can remember. I think it was Ken Wright at one point said to me, "You know, when we were still trying to figure out what we wanted to do, you know, come on up here, Ted. You belong here." And it was such a sweet thing because I certainly felt that really strong sense of camaraderie and community um, with people in Oregon. Um, so those aspects really—it felt—it felt like. Um, you know, like watching pioneers, but not quite being one. Right, because they already had done that. the pioneering had happened. And there had been some really brilliant wines produced. um, But you didn't have to quite be the person
2: (laughs) who figured out whether it was possible. So, with that said, you obviously didn't end up in Oregon. So, why
1: did you end up choosing where you did and and what was sort of your what was sort of the idea as you were getting started?
3: Sure. So I can the process of elimination is simplest for me. I, I'm not really a Southern California kind of guy. So um just culturally, as much as I enjoy the wines of Santa Maria or what was then Santa Barbara and became the Santa Rita Hills, wasn't really my kind of place. I had a lot of concerns about the sizes of the properties, Rich, that you know there was obviously a landed gentry that owned a lot of this land. And I didn't see how I'd ever be able to buy a little tiny bit of it. Um, so I had that concern, whether well-founded or not, doesn't matter. Um, I wasn't much interested in Carneros Pinot Noir. I never had been. I, I just found the wines um, uh, nice, but not inspiring. Um, So I I wasn't much interested in that. Um, Shalom, Calera, fine, but awfully hot to me, awfully warm area. Um, I'd long since lost any sense that Pinot Noir had to be on limestone. So I had no limestone prejudice at all um, about it. And um, so it really came down to what I call the true North Coast or, or Oregon. And I, as I began to look around and I looked at the geologic diversity of the North Coast, I was like, okay, this is more true pioneering. I mean, you're gonna be a first generation here, but that's also an opportunity. And so I was like, that really, that geologic diversity interests me, the fact that you're you know, less than 40 miles from the most famous wine region in the United States and it's virtually unknown for grapes, I thought was really interesting. Um, I had a base of people I knew, a support group I knew in Napa and Sonoma. Um, I thought I could get some consulting work. There was not a lot of consulting work in, in Oregon at that time, um, virtually none. Um, so I had a concern about how I was going to pay the bills in Oregon. Um, so that's how we made that decision. Um, we looked at some specific properties in in Oregon that I was quite excited about. I got to tell you the story of one because you'll get a kick out of it. Um, But um, yeah, it just came down to those things. Culturally, it was was a a disappointment because I certainly was much closer to the culture of Oregon than I was to Napa Valley. Um, And there, I mean, there was no winemaking culture on the Sonoma Coast because it was just coming into being. And it's one of the things that people forget is we knew a lot more about Oregon in 1990 than we did the Sonoma Coast. Um, and that's easily, easily forgotten that Oregon was much more established. Not compared to the Russian River, of course, but you know, talking about the Russian River and the Sonoma Coast in the same breath is something we don't do around here. They're two completely different entities. So.
2: so so, you, ha-
1: you have you an have Oregon property story to share.
3: Yeah, so we looked at, we looked at a property uh, in the Dundee Hills that was for sale. that was quite high up, um, which was, I think it was the name of the family. You, you may know this, but it was uh, Fuqua was the name of this property. And I really liked it. And I thought it had real potential. And I'm like, oh boy, it wasn't expensive. House needed being fixed up. It was a pretty funky old house, but Heidi and I really thought seriously about it. Um, we ended up not doing it. But the reason it's a funny story is because I I was the original con- consultant for Archery Summit, right? And so we made the '93 and '94 vintages down here in Napa, um, and uh, those wines uh, were a lot less new oak than the Archery Summit style became later. Um, but it was really fun to do that and to sort of help um, Gary Andrus get uh, Archery Summit off, off the ground. So all of the original vineyard plantings for um, what became the Red Hills Estate and and uh, Arcus were done by me. Those were all woodstock clonal combinations that I laid out for Gary on the various sites. and. Um, uh, so I spent a lot of time in Oregon, but when we were early on in the archery summit process and they hadn't yet purchased any land, Gary said, I have a speech property I want you to look at. And he started describing it to me and I said, oh, you want to show me Fuqua? And he said, what? And I said, yeah, you're talking about Fuqua. And he's like, how the hell do you know that? Well, that's the reason I knew it is because we'd looked at it. And I said, I didn't even, I said, I don't need to go look at it. You should buy it. you know, I'm happy to go up there and have another look, but you should buy it. That's, that's a great piece of of dirt.
1: That's awesome. I love that. So tell me about, I'm gonna come back to Archery Summit in a second, but tell me about once you, once you had sort of honed in on Sonoma and on the North Coast, uh, as you said, an an unknown area at the time, which is, which is kind of mind-boggling to think about. Uh, What were you looking for in terms of land there? And what was your sort of what was your in your mind what was the project going to be what were you going to create there
3: well i didn't know we had to start small since we couldn't own land i i felt in 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 this particular instance again because it was less understood i mean i love the eola hills i don't i don't want to not mention the eola hills um because we made a couple i think it was two vintages of wine from temperance hill at at archery summit those first two years um, so I spent a lot of time at Temperance Hill. Um, of course, Christum existed at that point and Steve and I were very good friends. Um, so I, I, you know, I was very, we were very high on Seven Springs. Um, there was a lot of stuff about the Iola Hills. I liked as much, if not more than the Red Hills of Dundee. But um, in any event, the, um, the thing about down here that was different is that nobody knew this land right so no one could say well eola hills is like this and the red hills of dundee are like that or, you know to oversimplify which we all do all the time uh, you couldn't really speak that way nobody could say well casadero's like this and occidental's like that because the number of vineyards out there was tiny <laughs> And there was no way to quantify those things. So I felt very strongly about not owning land. Um, so uh, we looked at a parcel right next to Marcusan where Helen truly had purchased with her husband, um, John Wettlaufer. Um, and we went out there and looked at it with Helen and John. And I just was too soon. I didn't want to own anything. I wanted to be able to really uh, spend 10 years or so sort of investigating the area before we actually purchased, which I don't think I would have felt, as I said, in Oregon, because I I felt a much stronger sense of where the good spots were, which was another
2: reason that it made me nervous to stay on the Snowman Coast, because it was like, well, nobody knows. So in that time exploring what did you find? What what uh, excited you about what you were finding, and what did you see as the potential of that area? Um, the the backstory to this
3: is that there was a tasting group of winemakers in Calistoga in the nineteen eighties that tasted only Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and nothing else. Um, and the people who were in that tasting group were. Um, Tony Soder, Burt Williams, Helen Turley, David Ramey. I'm blanking, but there were a bunch of other people who were really great winemakers and it was really fun to taste to taste wines from all over. So you drop one Oregon into a lineup of Burgundy or you drop one Burgundy into a lineup of Oregon or John Wetlawford did all of the organizing of this. And so it was really fun. Or you'd have a producer pair. You got two Dujacs in there. Go see if you can find them. Um, but what was most interesting to me about this tasting group was that there were not many wines from the Sonoma Coast, but they, the ones that were there certainly belonged in that group. And so for me, Rich, wine is a conversation. And so if you're talking about, um, inexpensive wine, house wine, it's, it's a conversation, just like if you're talking about the best wines in the world. And for me, I don't really care what the ranking is of the best wines of the world. I'm not really interested in whether you ranked, you know, A first and C second and B third. I'm really much more interested in whether a wine belongs in a conversation. Is it of sufficient quality and distinction and complexity that it belongs in the discussion of the great wines of the world? And there were certainly a couple of wines we had from the Sonoma coast, which absolutely belonged in the discussion of the best of Oregon or the best of Burgundy. And um, so to me, that's what mattered that that's the way i saw it and so having tasted a few of those things i was like yeah no i think there's the there's the potential there um if you can find the right site and and work with it which of course is the big f because you don't know right
1: so take me through the the timeline then from sort of Landing in the Sonoma Coast as as the area you want to work till so starting Literai and, and and how the uh, how the project came about and and sort of the evolutionary steps along the way.
3: Yeah, so our first finish was '93. We started with one Pinot Noir and one Chardonnay. We had decided that it was going to be what we called the true North Coast, the string being along the coast of the Mendocino and Sonoma counties, um, which basically in Mendocino, Man Anderson Valley, um, the only valley that opens to the ocean um in Mendocino county right most of inland Mendocino is landlocked or or mountain locked I guess would be the better description um so it was a relatively narrow band um probably less than 15 miles wide at the widest um that we were really interested in and um we called it the true north coast because for us it wasn't just the true Sonoma Coast, it was also the Mendocino Coast. And um, so we started with one wine from Anderson Valley and one wine from the Sonoma Coast, a Chardonnay from uh, Mays Canyon, and a Pinot Noir from the vineyard, which we called One Acre, which we now own, and um, just grew as we could. So in, 80, in 94, we came to Hirsch at the same time that, oh, Steve Kistler was in that group. I didn't mention Steve. Um, Steve Kessler was in the tasting group. So Steve Kessler, Bert Williams, and and I all came to Hirsch in February of 94, chose different blocks that we all wanted to, you know, get fruit from or share or whatever it might have been, depending on the ex- uh, specific block. So we just found things little by little um, as they became available. And that's what sort of allowed us to build up the breadth of experience to have a better sense of where we might want to actually purchase land. And so that first purchase was not until 2000 at a a site that was not developed called, which we call The Haven, which is about two miles Northwest of Occidental, three miles from the ocean, about 1300 feet in elevation. And then in 2004, uh, 2003 came The Pivot, which we own, which is where the winery is located. And that's where all the biodynamic farming has really been developed um, from there. Um, And then after that, we bought the um, one acre site in 2016 and there were a bunch of leases along the way, we leased, you know, 30 year lease on Tyriot, um, 25 year lease on Roman Vineyard in Anderson Valley, a few of those things. And and still today, you know, about 50% grower wines and 50% owned or long-term leases.
2: With those the first
1: wines you made in ninety three and ninety four in that in that in that era, what did you think of
2: the wines you're creating, and what was the response from consumers to the wines you were making? I was very aware, Rich, that um,
3: the dominant media style was not a style that we wanted to make, and so. Um, That was part of why I sort of lost interest in Archery Summit was because the wines became a little more oak-driven and a little maybe flashier at that period of time than I would have liked. Um, And so the question was, if you know that the party boat is leaving the dock over there, and you're not on the party boat, and you don't want to be on the party boat. How are you going to make a living? How are you going to pay the bills? And so we went directly. What we did is we imitated what was done in Burgundy in the 1930s. In other words, when the negotiants stopped purchasing wine with the Depression, um, all these growers like Rabenay and Gouge, etc., started bottling their own wine. I mean, a few had obviously bottled it before then, but Um, some of the finest estates started bottling their own wine and selling it. And so they went to the restaurants of Paris, uh, Pierre Ramonet among them, uh, went to Paris and said, will you buy my wine? And that's how they began um, selling their wine. And so that's what we decided to do with the sommelier community in the United States, starting in New York and California, was tell the story and say, if this is something that you're interested in, I sure hope you'll you'll buy the wine. It It was that simple
2: trying to work really with this Nassam community. And what was their response to it? Because you, as you
1: said, it's, it's going against sort of the, the dominant style at the time. Was, were they excited by what you're doing? Did they, did they see the potential? Were they on board or was it a harder sell?
3: No, I think we were really lucky. I mean, the brilliant thing about starting small is Rich, you don't need that many fans. <laughs> You don't have to worry about it too much. You got to find a sucker or two out there, right? Um so we've we were able to find them and a lot of people understood it um and were excited about it. And so we were able to grow as our market grew. And we were very fortunate that we, you know, we had some really important buyers in those early years. Uh, French laundry began the same year we did. So we had a real connection to the French laundry. It was still the glory days of Oriole in New York. Uh, Le Marché still existed in New York. Um, uh, Rubicon in San Francisco. Um, I wish I could say there was all kinds of support from Portland, but I, I can't say that that was the case. <laughs> I, had to, I had to tease you about that one. <laughs> Anyway, we went to those restaurants and and were able to build a clientele little by little. um, Trying to tell that story of a little more restraint, less new oak, hopefully wines that would age, but nobody knew. Again, we knew more about Oregon's ability to age than we did the Sonoma Coast. There's no question.
2: You were a little ahead of your
1: time for Portland, I'm sorry to say. you'd You'd be a huge hit right now, I bet, though.
3: (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> it's a different time. <laughs> Portland's a different city, as you <laughs> said. It's true. It's true. I'm not sure either is better, by the way, but that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> so you you brought back you brought
1: up Archery Summit again. There, I want to kind of get back to that. How did that come to be? How did how how were you the person that ended up being part of that? And what what were the kind of the early days of Archery Summit like from your point? <laughs>
3: So, so Gary and I were very, we were, we were good friends down here, um, uh, during the time I was working in Napa. So when he began, when he was interested in starting archery, so, so he said, look, I really don't know anything about, you know, you, and you gotta, you gotta help me out here. And so I said, sure. And so I started working with him and, um, it, it was, um, certainly, you know, pilot winemaking in the best sense, but hopefully with the best fruit. We worked with Weber uh, in in the Dundee Hills. Uh, I mentioned Temperance Hill. So we were trying to out, trying to different parts of of, of the Willamette Valley to see what the quality potential was. And um, once it was clear that they were ready to, to pull the trigger on doing the winery, and then that's when it really got fun, because then, of course, we had the, the, um, the home estate to develop um, along with the, the design of the winery and all that sort of thing, um, which was a lot of fun to work on and um, a little scary because you know, you're know you drilling a cave in, in Oregon and you just see how much moisture is coming out of the walls. <laughs> it's like, wow, this is really tough conditions under which to, to dig a cave. Um, but it was, it was a lot of fun. We spent a lot of time tasting all over the Willamette Valley. We spent a lot of time in Burgundy tasting. Um, I felt pretty comfortable about the clonal and rootstock selections. I was less at ease, Rich, about the, the question of spacing for Oregon, because you do have, much like California, and in some ways more, um, you do have that completely charged, uh, in the old days, soil moisture profile. Right where you go into June and the, the, the spurt of growth with a lot of soil moisture, more than Burgundy would normally see. And so you get really active, vigorous, vigorous growth. And you know, looking closely at Drew whether they knew we were looking closely or not, um, and seeing the amount of growth in some of the really tight spacing, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't convinced that that was the best choice for Oregon. Um, so we felt like meter by meter might be fun to do as an experiment, but that, yeah, we should, we should probably be a little wider to give the vines obviously a little more room to express the vigor. And I, I think that was, that was a good choice. I think there were some other things about it. The early choices we made where the spacing probably should have been not quite as tight. Um, but I think in terms of rootstocks, they were overall pretty decent choices. And I know that Archery Summit has done a bunch of modifications um, to spacing, et cetera, since, which I certainly would have done too. Um, but it was a lot of fun, and it was it was real. And clonally, in terms of clonal selection, that, that I felt very comfortable about, Rich, because we knew what um, had been brought into Oregon before. I'd had experience with these clones in Burgundy, so the whole Dijon family thing made perfect sense to me. I didn't have any questions about that? Um, and uh, in terms of heritage clones, there wasn't as much available other than Homard and Vadensville, which were fine and, and we were totally interested in using. Um, we just didn't want them to dominate the mix because we weren't,
2: we weren't convinced yet. So tell me about a little bit about Gary Andrews. Uh, obviously, a pretty notorious
1: character in Oregon wine history, and one that we never had the chance to meet, unfortunately. Uh, what, from your memory, what prompted him to want to be here and make Pinot and Chard in the first place, and what were some of your maybe uh, interesting moments, memories, or stories of him uh, in Oregon?
3: Yeah, I think I think one thing that really was important to Gary was he wanted to have a regional. A clear regional break from the winery in Napa, and he felt very strongly that Oregon gave them that the the, suf- the sufficient um, distance from Napa, um, whereas the Sonoma Coast or Mendocino, I think he felt like it was too. The stories would be too blurred, and he wanted very distinct, separate stories. And he loved challenges. This is a man that loved. This is a you know a man who was full of life and. Um, a lot of fun to be with, um, who, who liked challenges, who liked things that were different. And so I think he really felt like he could see that distinction and he could have wineries that really had their own entity, right? That it wouldn't be, by being in Oregon, it would not be an appendage of Pine Ridge. And I think that was smart. Think that was that was very very smart because there was no question from a wine quality point of view that it would work it was just a question of you know how does this fit into your overall business um, so fun stories with Gary there were a lot some of which can't be mentioned in, in a recording but um, I think he had come to see me in Burgundy back in in the early '80s before we were before we knew each other, and uh, um, he said, "Let's go out to a restaurant." So I took him to a Chinese restaurant, and I think he never forgave me for that. I think that's that's part of the reason he needed to seek revenge in some way on me. Uh, so um, the other thing was was Sam Tannehill, right? That Sam had spent a harvest working for me, and I was convinced that Sam had a great future in the wine business. And so I, I said to Sam, you know, it's gonna be a wild ride with Gary, but I, if, if you're interested in this, I think you should take this opportunity because I think that even if you only do it for a few years, you know, you'll, you're gonna see all kinds of things because of Gary's ambition, the nature of it is a new project. And I'm really glad that Sam decided to do that. I think it was a really great choice for him. And um, I'm sure Gary drove him pretty nuts during that period of time, which Sam may have discussed or been, uh, been uh, discreet about if he's talked to you. But uh, I think it's a great, great decision. And I think they, were, they worked well together. I think Sam was very patient with, with Gary and, and all the demands. So I want
2: to back up a moment for you.
1: You brought up biodynamics earlier. Obviously, one of the things you're most well known for. Uh, tell me about at what point that became part of your thinking, and what uh, encouraged you? What caused you to implement it in such a way as your as your property was growing and as your as your brand was growing?
3: So we, um, I farmed conventionally at that point for 20 years, 20 plus years, Burgundy. California consulting around California, including uh, the Santa Lucia Highlands and, and further afield and Oregon, obviously um, conventionally. And I just got to the point, Rich, where I, 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 I had a naive question for myself. I say this all the time that was important, which is what does the forest know that I don't know? And what I mean by that is obviously from an ecological perspe- perspective, Um, The forest has achieved a state of dynamic equilibrium, which, if we exclude climate change for a moment, should be sustainable for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And so the forest has figured out how to sustain itself, and it doesn't need a bag of calcium nitrate. So the question for me was, was how do I mimic the forest in the vineyard? And so... As I looked at it, my concern for the world of organic farming was that it could be seen as a substitution game. I just get synthetic, I just get rid of the synthetic phosphorus and I substitute uh, an organic form form of the mineral. But I'm still living in that world of uh, mineral fertilization, explaining how and why plants grow and reproduce. And that's what i would lost confidence in. Um, I really felt like if it explains part of it, it explains only a very small portion of, of how the plant world functions. And there's plenty of great organic farmers. You know, what some people refer to as deep organic farmers who don't just do a substitution game, but I'm just relating to you what I experienced at the time, not saying it was correct. Um, and so I said to myself, well, biodynamics is a completely different thing. I'm, you know, 40 years old. 40-plus years old, this is a great time to have my ideas and beliefs shaken up, and so let's try it. And so when we decided to start, Rich, there was none of this, you know, spray a spray and see what happens. It was like 100%. And then if it doesn't work, you can go back and be the best organic farmers you can be, but you're not nibbling around the edges. Whether you believe it or not, you've got to to give the system a chance. And so that's, that's what we did starting in 2000 with the Haven, which was that first site. And then, you know, within six months I was starting to see things that made me say, yeah, we're gonna continue and we're gonna expand this. And so here we are 20 years later, um, 22 years later, and the only sites at Litteri that are not farmed biodynamically now are Savoy and Charles Heinz, both of which are farmed organically, but but not BD. everything else. Well, and one other site for the Sonoma Coast plant. Everything else is farmed biodynamically.
2: Far you mentioned seeing quick, quick results, quick, quick progress. Uh,
1: what were the initial things you saw that excited you about what you were doing, and uh, how were there once you kind of dove in and saw progress? Were there obstacles? Were there setbacks along the way that you had to kind of figure out how to deal
3: with? Um. The. The one thing I saw that really excited me was, you know, especially in California, in our completely summer dry climate, you know, you hit late August and you've gone three months or more with more without a drop of rain. And yet I was seeing things germinate in the soils. You know, you didn't have a lush cover crop by any means, but you had things germinating at a time where I'd never seen things germinating before. So that was a key. Um, Grafting on the waxing moon was another thing that really we had tremendous success with. So all these little things, you can't turn them into randomized block trials and prove by any means, and I would never claim that you could, but all these indicators to me that this was working. And that it was worth pursuing. And then after a few years, you become even more convinced of it because, you know, you're really not doing anything more than basic organic inputs. And and by that, I mean, sulfur, mineral oil, you know, biological fungicides, and your vines are healthy, and you've got less botrytis than conventional Chardonnay vineyards or whatever it might be. So that to me was, those things all added up.
2: What was the learning curve
1: for you there? How long did it take you to feel comfortable with biodynamics, uh, especially since it's such a sort of preventative rather than proactive rather than reactive type of thing? Did it take a while to get used to that?
3: Um, I think some of the concepts are a challenge no matter how long you've been farming that way. And it's helpful to think about it like learning a foreign language. You You just need to do a little bit of the monkey see, monkey do. You know, And when the teacher comes in in the morning and says, bonjour, you can probably figure out that that means hello or good morning or something along those lines. So I think there's, there's value to that. And then you piece together the understanding as you can yourself over time. But um, I, I, never, I never experienced, I mean, the challenges are around organization, right? How, how can you begin to make all of your own preparations, grow all of your own, your own preparation plans? How can you put all these layers and the animals, the grazing of the animals, the vineyards, all this stuff together? Um, And there's no one answer. It all depends on the individual farm and location and uh, the region because different regions have different, you know, different ways of making compost work differently. I mean, we haven't mentioned this, but I consulted New Zealand for 18 years and we finally figured out how to make compost in New Zealand, it took us a while. Uh, or at least in central Otago. Um, and each region is different and it has its peculiarities, and you have to work towards an understanding of, of those. But it's really putting all the pieces in place rather than, oh, shoot, you know, I got terrible mildew this year. I think that happens when you, you completely give up any allopathic work, right? The great frustration of vitis vinifera. Is that this is not a variety or this is not a species native to our continent, and we're trying to take a foreigner and put it on our continent under very different conditions with um, a, a native pest or a native disease in powdery mildew that Europe never had, and that Vidis vinifera did not, you know, evolve to have a, a resistance to, and so as a result, you know, you're going to be stuck with some forms of allopathy, You just have to, you can't do, at least at this point, everything homeopathically or, or synergistically. And, and that, of course, that's a frustration. That'd be my one single greatest frustration. But I also have a friend who was a biodynamic consultant for many years, who's no longer with us, who said, the other thing you have to realize about vinifera, Ted, and this also actually goes for the rootstocks that we all work, at, work with, since these things are basically clonally reproduced, you know, you're working with a photograph, a photograph of a photograph of a photograph of a photograph and just keep talking, right? So you're you're dealing with a very old, fragile person who at the same time has remarkable robustness and resistance. But it's a very it's a yin-yang relationship. It's got both those things at the same time. And this is the great benefit, I think, um, of the natural wine movement is challenging all of our preconceived notions about hybrids or new crosses, um, trying to work towards less spray. And I think that part of it, or no sprays, is, is absolutely wonderful. And I completely support it in that sense. Um, anything that pushes us further is important. But, you know, Rich, the, the thing about powdery mildew, if you think about it, um, in the United States, there has been, well, I, 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 we'd have to check with Davis probably, or Cornell, but there's been research into powdery mildew going back to at least the 50s or 40s, I would think. And so, There's, again, a really childlike question you can ask yourself, which is, how can so much human intellect be bent for such a long period of time on a problem and not have solved it? Clearly, we're not asking the right questions. If we were asking the right questions, we would have found the answer. Maybe the right question is, get rid of vitis vinifera in the United States. That's fine. If that's the answer, that's the answer. That's okay. But clearly we've been asking the wrong questions. And of course, some of this goes back to the fact that all of this research is funded by the chemical companies. This is not some lefty uh, proclamation. This is the reality of the way funding happens in agriculture in the United States. And so, of course, they're going to look for a fungicidal answer. They're not going to be interested in something else. That's not how they make money.
2: So uh, looking back for yourself at the, at the,
1: the evolution of literai from, from, from then to now, tell me about sort of the, the biggest milestones in your, in your mind. What are the biggest sort of accomplishments or achievements things you're proudest of or, or things that you maybe didn't think you'd ever uh, get to uh, that as you look back?
3: For a long time, uh, Heidi and I lived on Vineyard Avenue in St. Helena before we bought um, the pivot here in, in uh, <clears throat> west of Sebastopol, between Sebastopol and Freestone. And um, when we were thinking about where we would set up camp, I would drive I would drive east towards Highway 29. And I said to myself, whatever the decision is, I'm either going to turn left at 29 or I'm going to turn right. But I'm never going to do both. And what I meant by that, Rich, was from a, a organizational and a personal point of view, if we were going to do the North Coast or even Oregon, that was turning left. right. If we were gonna do Carneros or Santa Cruz or Santa Maria, that would be turning right. But we would never mix those two. Um, Because my feeling remains to this day that the greatest challenge in the wine business is maintaining the intimacy between the wine grower and the place. And it doesn't matter whether you're in Burgundy or in Oregon or in California or in Chile, we all have these things pulling us in all different directions. And if you're too geographically dispersed, you lose that intimacy of connection to place. And so I had multiple opportunities during during and after working with Archery Summit to buy food in Oregon. And I, as you know, I love Oregon, but that's just not what we do. And it was a form of self-discipline to say, no, that's just not what we do. Other people can do that. You know, Patty Green can come by down and buy Hirsch, That's awesome. But that's not what Litter is gonna do. We need to focus on our little part of the world and, and maintaining as much intimacy with our part of the world as we can. And if that means that we never buy fruit from some amazing sites in the Santa Cruz mountains because they're amazing sites, it's okay. That's life. It's just fine.
2: I
1: like that notion of intimacy with place. Uh, How long does it it take you to feel, how long did it take you to feel that about the various places, especially your kind of home base there? How long to understand the place? How long to, to learn to kind of, to love it or to
2: understand it at that level? I don't know.
3: I think you learn, you always learn, right? You never stop learning. Um, I think your predictive abilities get better as you've seen a wider and wider range of of vintages and and um, uh, uh, climatological conditions. So I think that you know that's helpful. I would he- hesitate to put a number on it. I I will say, and I don't know why, what you just said makes me think of this. I never understood the, the subtlety of vintage until I came to California. Now that might seem like a um, counterintuitive statement, but what I mean by that is that in Northern Europe, particularly even more so than Oregon, although I would say the Oregon of the seventies and eighties before climate change had more of this, um, but in Northern Europe, the the, Differences from one year to another really hit you over the head, right? Like it rained two inches in the 10 days before harvest. What more do you need to know, right? Well, actually, you do need to know a lot more than that. Or, you know, there was terrible bud set, you know, fruit set because of rain during uh, harvest or whatever, I mean, during, during flowering, whatever it might be. But the reality is that vintage is far more subtle than that. And it depends on things that we don't really think about. First of all, they're perennial plants. So the prior year has far more influence on what the fruit is like the next year than any of us ever talk about. And when you work in California and you work in a summer dry climate and you see these extraordinary differences in vintages. And of course, everybody says, yeah, it's, you know, it's summer dry climate. The, the wines are more consistent. Of course they are, but there's no question that there's dramatic differences in in fruit profile and quality from one vintage to another or characteristics from one vintage to another. And seeing the degree of variation when you have a summer dry climate is really extraordinary. And I think Oregon experiences that too, for sure, that you, 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 think, you think too easily about the, the things that hit you over the head, like the two inches of rain, and you don't think as much about all these other little things that may actually have cumulatively had
2: a bigger impact. It's really interesting. I, I like that insight. So it's an interesting way to look at it. Um, I wanna back
1: up for a second, you mentioned New Zealand, obviously a big, a big part of, of your work uh, at Burn Cottage in New Zealand. Tell me how that came about and uh, sort of the, the role you've played there.
3: Yeah, so this was friends who um, owned distributorships in the United States, who um, were interested in investing in New Zealand. And the short story was that um, they asked me to come down and look at this piece of property that they had purchased on the fly? And um, I said, yes, this was the Sauvage family. And I said, yeah, I'm happy to go down and look. And they didn't know that I had a lot of very dear friends in Central Otago at that time. Um, just by circumstance, um, you know, uh, Steve Davies, who was uh, um, uh, his own uh, doctor's flat had lived with us for a year in St. Helena. Blair Walter, who's the winemaker at um, Felton Road, had spent his few, first few weeks uh, sleeping on our couch when he came to work at Newton in Napa Valley. Uh, Grant Taylor, I had met with Gary Andrus in eighty three when Grant was his winemaker at uh, um, at Pine Ridge. Um, and I can go on from from there a whole bunch of people. So I actually knew people in central Otago very well. I didn't. I'd never been to Central, but it was not like dropping in with no help. And so all those people were hugely helpful in us getting started. And um, it was a lot of fun. It's a different climate. It's very different from both California and Oregon. It's, it's, um, it's a desert, but it does rain throughout the year. And there are years in Central when you do get you know, an inch of rain in mid-growing season. And there are years when you can have you know, green, actively growing, growing cover crops throughout um, the year uh, or, or the summer, which you don't get in, at least in California, and certainly you don't see as much lushness in Oregon and some of the dry months, depending on what the rainfall has been like. So it's a it's a different world um, with very different light intensity, um, quite far north or south in this case, as, as you know, um, but uh, really a lot of, a lot of, fun to work in. And it was a place when I went down there where the big ripe school was very much dominant. So there was all this talk about, you know, a cool climate and all that, which I think some of that has been true in Oregon also, where there's been more talk about cool climate than actual cool climate winemaking, where the wines are bigger and richer and riper than than people really want to admit. And Central certainly was suffering from some of that, I think, at the time. Um, And we really, again, set out with a very different course. You know, we wanted to make wines that were much lower in alcohol. We felt like we could keep the acidity that way and that the wines would be ripe. But we caught a lot of flack from the locals for a while on that. But that started to change over time. I think the the basic picking parameters have moved much lower or less ripe on the sugar scale, at least, than they were in the early 2000s when we started.
2: So I want to kind of zoom out a little bit, obviously you have
1: a pretty unique perspective on the Oregon wine industry, uh, a unique perspective that we don't get to share very often. So tell me about your kind of, you mentioned your initial impressions of Oregon and the wines of the people here. Tell me from your, what you've seen change and, and from your, again, from your perspective, what Oregon wine looks like today and in 2022. Right.
3: Sure, and you know, it's important to say, Rich, that, that I'm an outsider, and so I, I don't have a really good sense of perspective today the way I might have in, in the mid-90s, um, but uh, I'm very interested in a lot of the producers that didn't exist, obviously, when, when I was working in Oregon and, and tasting those wines and following them. I think clearly the biggest single thing is the change in Chardonnay quality. There's no question about that. Um, And that was predictable. It was not part of the mission at Archery Summit. I think in some ways it should have been, but then Pine Ridge was producing Chardonnay, right? So that may have been another reason that Gary didn't wanna do it, I I don't recall at the time. But I always felt that that opportunity was there. And I think it was partly that it was just a poor stepchild, much like Pinot Gris, right? I mean, Pinot Gris was a wine you chucked in tanks because you could bottle it early and and get it out the door. And I think to to really to a large extent now acknowledged by many people who are making terrific Chardonnay now that maybe weren't back then was between plant material and time and effort, it, it just wasn't a focus. And I think that that's dramatically different today. And the, the quality leaps are really exciting and really, really fun. For me, it's really fun as an outsider to watch that. So that that really sticks out. I think that there's a lot more sophistication viticulturally and there's more complexity viticulturally in terms of both the rootstocks and clones and all those things. Um, I think we all tend to um, exaggerate our own progress in the sense that the bottom line is that mother nature has the steering wheel and she doesn't care whether you think you're the most sophisticated grape grower in the world and whether you've planted your vineyard to the most super fantastic clones and soil you can possibly imagine. When Mother Nature decides it's a great vintage, it doesn't matter whether it's 1982 or 2022. She she decides that, and um, so I think all of us tend to exaggerate our progress, and it's a natural aspect of needing to sell a product where you have inventory. <laughs> um, so I want to, you know, I want to emphasize that that matters, and that progress isn't always as linear as we think it is. We may be better at dealing with different things that we weren't 10 or 20 years ago. Maybe Oregon's better at dealing with warmer vintages than it would have been. I would never, ever deny that. So is Burgundy better at dealing with warmer vintages. Um, but I, I don't know that our progress is as linear as we like to think. I think the variety of progress is very clear. I think that the market understanding of Oregon is much better, and that there's a much greater appreciation. Um, I think that Oregon is very, is going to be challenged by growth, right? That the amount of growth is challenged today and will continue to be a challenge. Um, it isn't the small community that it was, and so holding together, holding on to the sense of community is going to be really important
2: and trying to foster it in the face of growth will be a challenge. Curious again, from your perspective for, obviously a place closer to you, uh, tell me about
1: the growth of Sonoma in the time you've been there, obviously from a, from a relatively unknown to what it is now. Uh, what are the biggest changes you've seen there and, and what has been, what is your kind of perception of those changes?
3: Yeah, I think that, um, uh, I think that you know it's it's always fun to, and I've looked at these statistics late lately. But you know, Sonoma County alone had more Pinot Noir planted than all of Oregon, at least up until really recently. and may still. My apologies to anybody who has that that number on the uh, tip of their um, of their tongue. But um, that puts things in a certain perspective, right? That Oregon remains very small. Um, that that is changing rapidly because there's no really no more land to plant in the Russian River Valley, um, and so that's gonna that's gonna dramatically shift over the coming years. Um, the Sonoma Coast is tiny. I mean, there's a thousand acres, approximately a thousand acres planted in the West Sonoma Coast AVA that was just um, approved. So, you know, if if the Russian River Valley is huge and Oregon is medium sized, you know. We're the the tip of the tail on on the rat, so to speak, uh, in terms of volume. And um, it means that uh, we have to have a really thoughtful, um, humble awareness of where we stand in the world and why. We're not going to be Oregon. We don't have the power. We never will. Um, We're never going to be the Russian River, either for the same reasons, even more so. and so we have to approach our position in the wine world um, being very much aware of that and that there will never reach that critical mass that I think Oregon has now reached. Right? It's just not going to happen here. It's not possible because of planning restrictions, forests, you
2: know, viable land, you know, It's really interesting to hear because it feels so backwards
1: from what we generally hear Oregon California uh, uh, you know, the size comparison it's very interesting to hear of Oregon as being larger than something. <laughs> yes,
3: it is, and and most Oregonians are not aware of that and that's been a very interesting thing um, is 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 as the, the Sonoma coast and Anderson Valley have developed that. That reality that people in Oregon don't know this, you know, that they, they think of big California, and yet we really are tiny compared to um, both the Russian River and, and Oregon and, and have to be aware of it and, and figure out how to find, find a way in the marketplace despite that.
2: So I'm curious. Your kind of a, your look ahead for the future, uh, both uh, for that for for
1: the North Sonoma Coast, for Oregon, uh, American Western wine in particular. What, what what's coming down the road for the for the wine industry? Uh, what are you excited about? Uh, is there anything that you're particularly concerned about?
3: Uh, climate change, for sure, is something we should all be concerned about. Um, it's going to affect um, water dramatically. It already is. We all know that. Um, it's affecting the composition of the forests and the fire fires that we're all going to face, um, which are, they are the reality that everybody's going to face now from San Diego to, you know, to Vancouver mm-hmm. and beyond. So um, that is a grave concern to me. I think that in terms of varieties, we've all got to be open. and. Uh, which is a real adjustment, I think, for the fathers of the Willamette Valley, where everything was centered around Pinot Noir, and I know it's a discussion, of course, in the community now. But I really encourage everybody to be forward-thinking about that. I don't, I don't think that um, planting Syrah on the right site in the um, in the Willamette Valley makes you a traitor, you know, by any means. Um, or any other minor variety which people are experimenting with and and doing great things with. I I think that that's the reality that we've all got to face, and I encourage everybody to really be actively engaged with it, including changing trellis systems, etc. And nobody knows where we're going, so nobody knows what the answers are going to be. I think there's a great question for all of us in the world of Pinot Noir of what does this variety become in a warmer climate? what is its ability to adapt? You know, does it, does it have more ability to adapt than we realize? Um, will the wines become profoundly different in the way they age because the climate is warmer? I don't I don't think anybody knows really. We, we, we know that the, there have been great vintages in Burgundy which were very hot and very dry and people celebrated them for years. So we actually do have some, uh, experience about that. We also know interesting things about it, such as the fact that the the length of day is much longer in Burgundy or Oregon in midsummer than it is in California. So the way that um, the way that climate change is going to play in each region is going to be distinct, but with this overarching theme of of the challenges ahead. Um, yeah, that really sticks out to me.
1: It's been interesting for us, uh, we've you know climate change, of course, has been a topic conversation from the beginning of these interviews, but water only recently has become a, a major part. It's been interesting to see the the switch flip on in a place like the Diamond Valley, where water never seems like it should be an issue for it suddenly to be an issue people are thinking about.
3: Yeah, and I mean, that you could say the same for the Sonoma Coast. I mean, you know, Casadero had, a, had an average, you know, rainfall per year of 80 or 90 inches. So it was the same situation in which people really didn't expect to have to face these issues. And Casadero may be one of the last places that, that will um, be okay because you could have 90 inches and still have a lot of water <laughs> at least in terms of rainfall. Um, but yeah, these are major considerations. they're, they're going to affect how we think about irrigation um, and I really encourage people um, to think about you know managing irrigation and there's been plenty of dry farming in, in the Willamette Valley, but it'll become more challenging, right? As as we get into a drier climate, that doesn't mean you can't do it. You just have to think about soils and soil composition and cover crops in a whole different way. And uh, so I don't think it's the it, I don't think it's goodbye to dry farming for for Oregon by any means. I think it's just a matter. Of, I mean, it's going to be vintage dependent, obviously, but it's going to really depend on. You're really going to be looking at trying to manage stress right in the second half of the year. That's what I think.
2: So, what about as you look ahead for yourself? uh,
1: What what comes next for you? What comes next for Literai? And is there anything you're looking forward to or or planning to, to experiment with or anything coming down the pike?
3: Yeah, so certainly the variety thing. Um, we'll experiment with both whites and reds. Um, I don't have a whole lot more to say about that now. We've already begun trellis experiments, you know, some re- relatively dramatically different to try to address the question of, you know, heat and shading on the vines. So those things are already um, in process. Um, you know, we'll buy some more land for sure. At some point, and we'll plant some more. Um, you know, I think in America we suffer from this disease of thinking that um, you always need to grow, right? And we haven't grown in production and literize since the mid 2000s or 2007, 2008. Um, and there's a lot of other ways to grow, which and I really encourage all of us in the wine business to think about growth in a different way um, because the really successful wine businesses um, are not necessarily those that are growing in case volume. If that's what you want to be, and you're a world conqueror, and you're out to become the next, you know, greatest big wine mogul, good for you. Go do that by, by that kind of growth. But There's a lot of other ways to grow in the wine business, and we have a long, long way to go in the States to get there compared to some of our friends in Burgundy who have multi-generational, Senses of, you know, growth without becoming
2: larger. All right. Well, I could talk to you all day, but that is all the questions that I have for you. Uh,
1: is there anything I didn't ask that I should have anything I we didn't talk about that you wanted to cover?
3: No, I don't think so. I, I think we covered everything that comes to mind. Um, yeah, I think I'm good.
2: Excellent.
1: Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate the background chorus of animals as well that was kind of coming through. That was, that was excellent and a welcome yeah, addition to we, we you. We staged that
3: for you. <laughs> That's
1: just piped in.
3: <laughs> I do that every time we have an interview or talk to a media, I turn on the piped in they're right, they're right below us and uh, right below the winery right now and they love to set up a racket. Um, sure, I'm happy to say they have a lot of offspring up at Christum right now. So there's a whole. I think Dan told me they were up to 50 or 70 sheep at this point. I can't remember.
1: Yeah, I went out and saw him before 2021 harvest, and there was a lot more than he had said when we first met him. So they're 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 propagating rapidly as you would hope.
3: Yeah, and they're good at that. <laughs>
1: Thank you so much for your time today, for for sharing your stories with us and for chatting.
0: Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at oregonwinehistoryarchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University, with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.